The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Scott Coffin. He has a PhD in environmental toxicology at the University of California, Riverside, and he works for the California State Water Resources Control Board. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. Awesome. So you have a, a an amazing kind of history of all these studies that you've done, and uh, I look forward to hearing a little bit about what you do in your job currently as well. Um, so I looked through a lot of the studies that you've done, and a lot of them are on toxicants. Uh, so one thing that I've heard a lot in the the zero waste world is that plastic can act like a sponge for toxicants. So could you clear that up for us? Like, is that true? Does that happen? Yeah, so it, it is absolutely true, uh, but the the relevance to organisms that ingest plastic is a bit more nuanced. So I should first start by saying that plastic has been used by environmental scientists for many decades as a way of passively sampling. So what we mean by that is we'll put polyethylene out in the water or in a sediment somewhere, and it will passively soak up any uh, any hydrophobic contaminants, which is most of the contaminants that we've been worried about for for many decades. And this is this is a really uh, useful tool because you don't have to go and collect many water samples or many sediment samples over time. You can just put this out there for you know twenty eight days or so collect it and look it's it's uh it's very good at soaking up any of these toxicants and and then you can you can analyze them using instrumentation and so so it's no surprise that the plastic that we put in the environment that is not uh designed by scientists um is going to behave a similar way uh you know it's the same type of polymers polyethylene polypropylene uh, these are these are petroleum-based polymers that are, in many ways, chemically similar to a lot of the very toxic compounds that we put into the environment. Mm-hmm. So understanding that they they pick up that they pick up contaminants does not necessarily mean that they're transferring those contaminants at relevant at relevant rates to say a fish or a worm that encounters the plastic this is where things get a bit complicated and the key word here is fugacity which uh, in addition to being a really fun word to say is a fairly complex concept which essentially you could sum it up by saying it's the pressure so if you think of the if you think of a chemical gradient as as basically a, like a membrane where you have chemicals on one side of the membrane and chemicals on the other side in nature things like to be in equilibrium and so if you have a, a lot of chemical a on one side of the of the membrane and very little on the other side there's going to be pressure literal pressure that will push the chemical across the membrane uh, and that's known as fugacity gradient, that that rate of transfer. And so when these plastic particles have really high quantities of a, a, a compound like PCBs or something, and a fish eats the plastic, depending on the fugacity, the, the ratio of that particular chemical between the fish and the plastic, there may or may not be transfer in either direction. So the plastic could, in fact, clean the organism if the organism is already, quote unquote, dirty uh, and it could go the opposite way. Wow. That is so strange to think about because we've talked on the show before that bonds can destabilize 
in plastic, like if you leave plastic out in the heat or something, and then you get things out like BPA. But now we're talking about getting things into the plastic as well. That's a very good way of looking at it. I love how you said about the barrier and you can imagine from biology class or something like things on each each side of that membrane and then trying to get it reminds me of like salt water where where it's trying to like balance itself, I guess. So if there is a bird that has a whole bunch of chemicals or perhaps even like an in an oil spill or something, then it's possible maybe they could eat microplastic and it might help? Or is that like crazy? <laughs> no, it's it's definitely not crazy. So uh, you're you're absolutely correct. If if the if the organism is really contaminated and it and it encounters a less contaminated um hydrophobic substance, which that could be plastic, that could be food, it could be sediment, anything that the organism encounters, it's going to, the equilibrium is going to push whichever direction that contaminant goes. And overall, in the global setting, we believe that microplastics are approximately as, as relevant as a transfer source of, of these pollutants uh, as as about one trillionth uh, of of water itself, and if you think of water like the whole ocean, that's a lot of water. Um, it's a huge mass compartment for these contaminants. Of course, they're extremely diffuse, but the the plastic itself is is also an extremely negligible amount of mass in that compartment, uh, relatively speaking. And and while the the plastic may be more contaminated, you have the two-way street that's going on and with other compartments like water or like prey uh, like phytoplankton zooplankton um, these we believe to be not only much more of a relevant transfer mechanism of these compounds but an extremely higher quantity on the order of you know nine orders of magnitude difference and it's important to understand that that's that's the global estimate and these these numbers are, are there's a pretty good consensus on this. There's there's been a lot of studies that have been done on this in the past three or four years, but that's not to say that it's not still an an issue in very specific instances. Say a, a pristine area like like a, a high mountain lake that mm-hmm. now we know that microplastics blow around in the air and they can be transported up to Mount Everest and. In those cases, you wouldn't expect there to be a lot of pollution. And in those cases, the plastic could be carrying the pollution. Think also like uh, Antarctica or, or areas that are just ordinarily, um, you would expect them to have very little pollution. Uh, and those are the cases that we would be concerned about plastic transferring adsorbed contaminants. That must be so small for a piece of microplastic to be so small that it could get up into the atmosphere and like rain down again, right? Yeah, this is this is really a recent discovery. We did a show on it. Um, we've got two of them actually. Uh, there's been two researchers that have went up to the Arctic and and found it in all the new the new layer of like snow and sea ice and stuff that goes on the top. And so there's no other way that it could get there other than raining down. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've known about that for a lot of contaminants um, like PCBs. Uh, we call it the distillation effect. Uh, you can think of the earth like a snow globe and, and you're basically heating things up at the, at the equator and they, they cycle up towards the poles and they accumulate. That's why polar bears have really high levels of, of PCBs in their, in their fat. And oh, do they? it seems like a similar thing could be happening with, with plastic particles. What what are PCBs? Can you just give us like a little bit of a definition? Because you you've studied those quite extensively too, I think, right? Yeah, uh, PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls. There's 208 of them, and they they've been widely used for uh, use in capacitors and transformers. But mm-hmm. they were discovered to be extremely toxic in approximately the 70s, and that's when the production was banned in the United States and most countries. And actually in 2001, the international convention called the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants decided that this class of chemicals should be banned globally. And this was signed on by uh, nearly every country in the world. So they're, they're technically officially banned, but they are 
some of the most persistent chemicals that humans have ever created. So they're never going to go away. And in addition to that, they're actually still being created and at rates that are higher than they were before the ban. And that's sort of like really puzzling. Uh, it's illegal to make them, but there are loopholes in the law that allow trace amounts of it, of unintentionally made amounts in products. And mm -hmm. just the sheer mass that we're making of stuff, mostly plastic, turns out that we're making more PCBs, we're putting more PCBs in the environment now than we ever have before. And this is really mostly coming from China. That's where, where most of the plastic is made. That's what I was thinking. I was like, do I say China or do I not say it? They're, <laughs> they're just, they're, you know, they're making a lot of stuff. And what I always think of is like our, our Canadian industry, just a lot of stuff just went away. Like we don't have these giant factories that we used to, but we also don't have the pollution that we used to. Right. And, and sometimes when we talk about bringing back our industries to North America, I'm like, well, you're probably going to bring a lot of pollution back because it does take, you know, a lot of different things to make the products that we're used to. And I think, I think in the environmental world, sometimes we forget that, um, that a lot of the stuff we use, yeah, it takes a lot of stuff that might not be good. But yeah, so I wanted I wanted to know a little bit about the the PCBs. Um, and that's too bad that they're found in polar bears because there's been some controversy about polar bears, about like their, their population numbers. Uh, so yeah, that's too bad that we're finding that up there. So, but let's go back to the toxicants. So what kind of toxicants did you find in ocean plastic, is there a lot of them that are prevalent? For example, we've had a scientist say that they found a lot of PFAS, uh, but that was more on the bottom of the, o the ocean, I think. Mm, yeah. So actually, when I did my study, uh, PFAS was not quite the buzzword that it is today. And so I unfortunately did not look for those contaminants. Uh, I was mostly focused on PCBs as well as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, also known as PAHs. And these are, these are compounds that occur in oil and uh, from burning things. And they are nearly ubiquitous. They're carcinogens. And there's many different types of them, um, hundreds of, of different PAHs. Uh, some of the most toxic ones I found in the ocean plastic. And these seem to be from oil based on their chemical signature. Uh, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of oil spills have occurred. But we also found these in virgin plastic. So plastic that had not been in the environment at all. And that was actually designed for food consumption. Uh, poly polystyrene um, food packaging uh, contains rather high levels of PAHs that were associated with burning things. And this is, I looked into this and uh, it's actually quite common to find this because during production, uh, polystyrene requires some sort of combustion step that creates PAHs. Uh, and so this sort of just shows like, you know, we're, we're finding classic carcinogens in our food packaging. And this is this is not just PAHs. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot more that we find. That's horrible. Well, I, I think Canada's set to get rid of those. Uh, in food packages, which is good because a lot of people are are putting hot hot food in. It's styrofoam, right? Polystyrene is yes, basically styrofoam. But yeah, um, a lot of people put like boiling hot soup in there, and I I worry that you know that's probably getting some of the things out and into your food. Do you think that that's probably happening? Yeah. So so heat is is probably the biggest factor for extracting any type of harmful chemicals from from plastic. And yeah. what we found very recently is that uh, those those polyethylene bottles for children, for, for babies, can release uh, on the order of billions of microplastics. What? Okay, uh, sorry. What 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 kind of bottle? Polyethylene? Is that? It's what um yeah they're they're quite common. They're they're polyethylene. They're I mean basically any plastic bottle. Like I wouldn't put anything really hot in them. But these the particular ones that. The study looked at were polyethylene uh, baby bottles, and they, they are used for, you know, you put milk in them, you heat up the milk, 
And mm -hmm. when you don't heat up the milk, you just put cold milk, uh, the, the researchers found uh, really low levels of microplastics on the order of like hundreds to thousands relative to the billions that they found when you heat the milk. So oh I, would, I would just certainly avoid like any, any hot things and plastic. Yeah, that's definitely what I try to do too. I, I wonder if, if BPA was better then. Like, I wonder if, if, I don't know if you've tested this, but because remember baby bottles used to have BPA in them and then everybody kind of freaked out. And so now the bottles are supposed to be BPA free, but then you're testing and you can find like billions of microplastic in the milk. I wonder if those older bottles with the BPA would have been more stable. Oh, interesting. You know, I've actually never really considered that. And I don't, I don't know if anyone has done that level of testing because we're just, we're just at a stage that we can actually find microplastics at the small scale. You know, we've, we've been looking for these for decades, but we, our definition of microplastics is evolving. Before we considered them just small things, small particles that typically you would just pick them out by hand or with tweezers. And those are, those are not the ones that you're going to find in a baby bottle. The, the baby bottle, they mostly found things that were on the, the order of uh, about 1 to 20 micrometers, which is below what you would ever be able to see with a naked eye. Uh, you, yeah. need, you need fairly sophisticated equipment that has only just been developed. And so the BPA may or may not have any influence on the, the leaching of the microplastics. That's, it's just so new. This is just such an, a novel area of, of study. Huh. Yeah. There was a, a study about tea bags as well. I'm sure you saw polypropylene tea bags were putting like millions of little pieces of microplastic into our tea. Um, our CBC came out and did an article about that a while ago. But you also know uh, uh, stuff about like, you know, estrogen like substances, which I'm I'm quite interested in because I'm worried what it's doing to little boys uh, like we talked about the bottles right so first thing you do when you have a baby <laughs> a lot of people you know they they get the bottles going the plastic bottles and then they put a plastic soother in the mouth and and away they go right so I think that they're probably being exposed to a lot of this this stuff um, so I have a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about the estrogen because I know you did a study on the the guts of fish and seabirds right? So when, when they ingest these estrogen-like substances, what did you find happening in their gut? Yeah, so, so this study was really focused on seabirds that we've seen pictures of in the media of that they just have so many pieces of plastic, identifiable pieces of plastic in their guts. And the question of, are, are these causing harm through the transfer of chemicals was the basis of this study. And what we did was we, we selected plastic items that you can recognize in a seabird gut. So, you know, like a, a lighter, a uh, toothbrush, um, common, common commercial food products. That way someone could, could easily relate that, the lab results to a, a field study. And what we did was we took the plastic products and we soaked them in simulated seabird guts in a lab, extracted the chemicals and used something called an in vitro bioassay, which mm -hmm. is a human cancer cell line, specifically breast cancer cell line, that has been genetically modified to produce light when, est when estrogen receptor is activated. Uh, That's so, so wild. That's <laughs> okay, sorry, go on. So the, the the gene that produces light is from a firefly. So it's wow. we, we crossed a firefly with with human cancer cell line. It's 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 pretty crazy. You know, it, it's it's fun to talk about it with with people that are not like using it every day because it's sort of like yeah, of course. What do you mean? Like we're yeah, we're 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 crossing genes from all these different <laughs> kingdoms. Well, it seems like, normal to you. <laughs> Everyone listening is like, what in the world? <laughs> it is absolutely incredible. Um, we also have fish that glow um, when they're exposed to estrogen. We, wow. we use those in our lab as well. So, and do you, did uh, you do that with the firefly gene? Uh, same gene, same gene. Yeah, um, firefly gene. And then there's another one that turns that turns green 
uh, green fluorescent protein, um, and that's that's actually from um, a sea animal. Forgetting the word, oh, not like... a squid. It's kind of octopus. I think it's an octopus. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Wow. So this tool is really it's really great because it tells you exactly how much estrogen is in a sample. And you don't need to know what the chemicals are. It just it just tells you biologically this is the quantity of estrogen-like compounds that are biologically active. Sorry, are you measuring like how bright they are? Like how do you Yes. Yes. Wow. So the, the relative light intensity tells you how how much estrogenic compounds oh. oh my gosh. Okay. That's crazy. Okay, sorry, so, go on. <laughs> super neat tool. We tested that on all of these different plastic products in in fish and seabird gut extracts relative to control. And what we found is that overall, these estrogenic compounds are leaching into fish and seabird guts at much higher rates than uh, if they were just passively floating in the water. So that mm-hmm. tells us that there's there's a likelihood of exposure to these compounds and then we were also, since we did it for quite a number of items, um, we, we chose 16 of the most commonly ingested plastic items. We were able to identify four that were highly problematic, that had relatively high estrogenic activity. And the, the number one hottest sample was actually a uh, shopping bag, like a, a disposable, one of those single-use like polyethylene shopping bags. They're annoying, yeah. So... The the real pro the real trouble or the hard part is to actually identify the chemicals that cause the activity. We know we all know about BPA. We might know about phthalates, but these are these are sort of the classic estrogen like plastic additives. And so we we certainly looked for all of those. But that's a short list of twelve compounds. When you actually look at all of the chemicals in these samples, which uh, in a follow up study we did. We found over 2,000 features, uh, meaning approximately 2,000 chemicals in a shopping bag. And we were only able to identify uh, about 20% of those. So, so these are mostly unknown chemicals. But one of those 2,000 chemicals in a shopping bag is mimicking estrogen? Likely much more than one. Um, we, so we, we did what's called fractionation. We basically split the samples into a bunch of little parts and Mm -hmm. used the bioassay on all of those. And then looked at the chemistry of all of those. And it was actually spread out among a lot of different suspect chemicals. So it's, it's, it just makes things a lot more tricky when you have really complex mixtures of a lot of unknown chemicals. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's like BPA, BPS. I think there's a BPF maybe. There's just like different kind of versions of them. And then you said um, like phthalates, right? So that's one that could have estrogenic properties. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the thing with BPA-free is it's probably got BPS or BPF or another yeah. bisphenol that does the same thing uh, biologically and just doesn't have enough attention or regulation. So if you're listening and you're worried about like what water bottle to use or something, because I've went through this, we use glass, but they they do end up breaking eventually. There's a, a kind, maybe it's Life Factory with like rubber wrapped around the glass. So that one's good. But I do still have some old Nalgene's that I use and I just make sure they don't get hot. Uh, so that that's, that's probably a safe bet. Yeah, just to like minimize it, right? Because I mean when you look around at all the plastic, it's like really impossible to get rid of all of it. I think the number one thing is just don't, don't cook with it. Don't heat it up. Like don't heat your food in any sort of plastic uh, in the microwave if you can. Um, I think that that's sort of like the best way of looking at it. Um, Are there any other additives that we would maybe know of that really stick out as being high for estrogen? Uh, not that are really common. Um, the biggest one, probably the the most potent one, is uh, it's called octalphenol. Basically, no one's heard of it, but it's no. actually just as potent as BPA, and it seems to be more common. We oh. we sometimes find it in PVC pipes, so yeah. oh, no. it's, you know some houses might have those, but that that's sort of uncommon. Do, yeah, the PVC pipes, like they're like the new white ones. Because I just built a house a couple years ago, and I was trying to look for alternatives, and they're like, no, just use this; it's fine. <laughs> yeah, they're they're really 
it, depending on where you live, there are rather strict regulations for the, the distribution systems, the, the lines that go to your house with the water. And overall, we don't, we don't find this compound too often, uh, but it has been observed in, in some PVC lines. That kind of sucks, I guess. Um, okay, so so I'm kind of saying why like I'm worried about estrogen, and it's clear from your studies that we're finding a lot of it in different types of plastic. Um, but there was a study I saw you mention, actually. I think you were giving your um, your thesis, maybe. There's a video, right, of you giving your PhD thesis on Vimeo? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that was really cool to watch. Uh, so if you're listening, um, Scott Coffin Vimeo, you can probably find the the video. I think that's where I saw this, that the there are some Canadian lakes somewhere that show that estrogen could collapse an aquatic ecosystem. So could you tell us like the dangers to nature, basically, of estrogen? Yeah, so this is a really fascinating study. So there's a there's a ton of lakes in Canada. And at some point, the Canadian government said, hey, scientists, do you want any of these lakes to experiment with? No joke. <laughs> there are, there's, a <laughs> there's a lot of lakes. And there's, there's an area called the Experimental Lake Section that has um, somewhere around like 200 lakes. You can, you can do experiments on them as, as a scientist. And they're actually, I think Canada recently donated them to um, like the UN or, or some type of like international group. So anybody can do experiments there now. Really fascinating place. And Professor Karen Kidd in about 2006 or so designed a study to determine if estrogen could have wide-scale population impacts on a, an aquatic ecosystem. And the rationale behind this is that estrogen causes feminization in fish. So unlike humans, some fish species are what's called sexually dimorphic, meaning that at a very particular time of development, very, very small quantities of estrogen can actually change the sex of the fish. So male fish will become female fish. And this can cause ovotestes, which is essentially a hybrid uh, between ovaries and testes. The fish become not quite female fully, but certainly not male anymore, and they become sterile. So yeah. when you have a lot of females and no males, you have no reproduction, and you have collapse of that species, which can, if it's a, a keystone species, can completely change the dynamics of that particular ecosystem. And to test this, they, uh, they dosed the lake the small lake with 10 uh, nanograms per liter, which is such a low quantity of a compound that it's, it's actually very difficult to even measure analytically. Um, so this is one billionth of uh, a liter. Very, very, very small. It's like, it's like putting a drop in Crazy. like seven Olympic swimming pools. And so they put 10 nanograms per liter of uh, synthetic estrogen uh, birth control in, actual birth control uh, pharmaceutical into the, the lake for a month and they just watched they just watched what happened and they, they found that the most sensitive species fish species basically were wiped out entirely oh my uh, gosh and it completely changed the uh the rest of the ecosystem you know um, some species increased some species decreased some other species were wiped out and interestingly when they stopped adding the estrogen over the course of about five years, that species came back. So there were oh, enough good. eggs. There were there was enough. It was like ninety nine percent reduction of the species, but there were just enough left that it actually came back. So that's that's a, a great success story. You know, we don't we don't have to have total ecological collapse. We can always rebound. A lot of the estrogenic compounds are not the most persistent chemicals, which is good. So when you stop adding it to the environment, the, the effect will eventually go away, which is mm -hmm. unlike something like PFAS or PCBs, where uh, once it's out there, you'll never reverse it, basically. Yeah. The Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can remember now. I think BPA has a half-life of either 12 or 6 hours, so it's not very long. It really is not, yeah. So because we're constantly putting it in the environment, we call it pseudo-persistent. 
Mm. So it's, it's always there just because we're always putting it there. Yeah, but you have to keep adding it in. Exactly. Yeah. It's really difficult to to avoid. I, I'm like growing all my own veggies and canning them and then like the lids have BPA on them. So then I'm trying to find like different jars and it's really difficult to try and avoid it. So what do you think the effects of estrogen are on humans? Is it something that we should be worried about, do you think? Yeah, so this has been a hot matter of scientific debate for a long time. And very recently, there has been several studies that have tried to provide clarity on this. Um, there's actually a study that is called the Clarity Study. I, I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but they, they clearly chose the, um, the title, uh, uh, the acronym quite well, uh, specifically for BPA. But, but we know that estrogen can cause a number of adverse health outcomes in humans. And this is usually linked to obesity, uh, low semen quality, genital malformations, as well as adverse pregnancy outcomes for, for women um, can lead to preterm birth and low birth weight. It's also been linked to neurobehavioral disorders that may be altered through the thyroid uh, receptor as well, uh, as well as obviously breast cancer is probably the, the most well-known and well-documented. And I think it's important to distinguish between the two types of estrogens. There's, there's two types of estrogen receptors that we really care about, uh, estrogen receptor alpha and beta. And the alpha is what would feminize a, a male fish. When, when estrogen receptor alpha is activated, negative things occur. When estrogen receptor beta is activated, it actually counteracts and suppresses estrogen receptor alpha. And there's not that many estrogen receptor beta active compounds, but the ones that you are probably quite familiar with are phytoestrogens, so soy. You know, a lot of people say, oh, uh, you got to worry about the soy, the the estrogens in your soy, and actually, those are those estrogens are really good for you. And in our modern day, where we have so much exposure to these harmful estrogens, uh, exposure to good estrogens, the phytoestrogens, um, is can actually be really important for our health. Really? Okay, it might be decreasing levels of estrogen if you eat a lot of soy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It it basically counteracts estrogen, uh, and so you know we know from yeah. from just looking at countries that eat a lot of soy, like Japan, that yeah. uh, many epidemiology studies have been done, and we find very low incidences of breast cancer in populations that eat a lot of soy, and that's that's been linked to this this uh, phytoestrogen. Yeah, but that's a good point, though that that you made about you know, it could be a tiny bit and it could affect your endocrine system because I think people see this and are like, you know, I can't see BPA. It's probably just a little tiny bit. So who cares? Right. But I think when you get those small, small levels, they can, they can still cause some, some complications and problems. Yeah. Uh, so a, a recent study actually found that BPA, just exposure to BPA in the United States causes uh, approximately $2 billion a year in healthcare costs due to obesity alone. So this is, this is wow. actually a really huge issue that we're dealing with as a society. Yeah. So I wonder though, if, if you could like, sure, people who are obese would probably test really high for BPA, but that's probably because they're eating so much packaged food. So it might not be directly because of the estrogen, right? But it could be, or it could be a number of factors, I guess. It's always a number of factors. And yep. so I'll give you a really good example of, of this interaction. So obesity in the United States, it's usually co-occurring with certain genetic origins or, or certain genes actually. And these genes, there's one in particular uh, it's a genetic polymorphism is the the scientific term for when there's a a an alteration of a single gene, and uh, th this this particular gene that's linked to obesity is a what's known as 
a metabolism rate gene. And essentially what this gene does is it tells the body either consume energy or store energy. And they researchers have found that the likelihood that one would have this gene is highly correlated to the latitude from which your ancestors are from. So that makes sense because is it a specific latitude? Yeah, yeah. So the closer to the the closer to the equator that your ancestors are from gives you a higher likelihood of having a slow metabolism gene. And if you think about oh. it, it makes a lot of sense because the folks from the equator uh, in olden days were not growing food. They were hunting food. They were often foraging for food. And well, and picking food, yeah, foraging because in the jungle there's like so much fruit and like things are growing off trees everywhere. It's like awesome. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But they're also in a climate that they don't need to be burning fat constantly, burning energy constantly in order to stay alive because it's warm. And so they, when they find food, uh, they store it as fat uh, because there may, be, there may be a long time between the next time they, they get that level of energy um, and they just don't need it right away. When people, and that's the dominant gene. That's actually, um, that's, that's essentially the, the, normal? the norm. That's the normal gene. The alteration is the fast burning gene. So when humans migrated to colder climates, they had to, in order to survive, they had to have a constant supply of energy that they would be rapidly burning just, just to keep their, their body temperature high enough. And wow. so that gene, in the United States at least, is linked with much lower levels of obesity and, diabe and type 2 diabetes. And that's because the, the American diet is really high in energy. Uh, it's really high in fat and sugar. and if you have a fast-burning gene, you're going to eat that. You're going to burn it up real quick. It's not going to be stored as fat. You're not going to have high levels of insulin, which is what causes uh, diabetes, uh, type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And if you have the slow-burning gene, which is mostly people from Africa, you're going to store a lot of that energy as fat, and you're going to uh, that, that's going to um, down the road lead to diabetes. And now, when you normalize the diet to a healthy mediterranean diet it all goes away you just don't you don't find diabetes uh, type 2 diabetes because you're not getting an excess of nutrients uh, of energy that you have to store and so that's that's an an example of uh you know this this mixture of a lot of different factors that lead to this health outcome and one additional one that you throw in the bag uh, exposure to BPA, now we find higher rates of diabetes across the board. And, and this is really why epidemiology is, uh, is quite complicated. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, you, have to, you have to separate all of these factors. So do you, do you personally feel like that is from the estrogen or do you feel it is from a packaged diet? It, it's a combo. It is, it is certainly yeah. a combo. Yeah, I mean it's it's if you're if you're eating a Mediterranean diet, regardless of your of your genetic background, BPA is is likely going to have a, a less less of an effect. Uh, it's going to make you. It's not going to give you um, obesity and and diabetes as much as it would if you're eating a a poor diet, especially if you have predisposed genes. So olives in a plastic container might be okay. <laughs> I mean, for, for, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that, it's something that we shouldn't be obliged to consider, you know, for our daily lives. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be having, as a citizen, I don't believe personally that we should have this calculus, have to do this calculus on a daily basis. We, we live in a society where things, we're told that things are safe. And if we're told things are safe constantly, things should be safe. We shouldn't have yeah. to constantly be in doubt of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. An interesting thing. Uh, I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I, I went like three years without getting sick. So when I started the show, I went zero waste. So I was eating all fresh foods and then dried grains, 
pastas, beans, that sort of thing, right? So everything unpackaged. And then, yeah, I, I went three years without getting so much as a, you know, a cold or a flu or anything. And I'm, I'm, I, I know that that must have had something to do with it because wow. I just changed, changed my diet so much, you know, away yeah. from that packaged food. Uh, but I did get sick again recently. So <laughs> my streak is over. Um, oh, and, no. <laughs> But we did we did start eating a little more packaged food with COVID, right? Because we couldn't take our own jar, jars to the store to fill up with things. So I did have to start getting more packaged. I think we got like a couple takeout pizzas, you know, things like that that we weren't really doing before. So I don't know. But yeah, lots of interesting, interesting uh, things that you've studied here. And um, about the, the endocrine disruption, can it passed down i think you did a study was it on zebrafish yeah yeah so um that study was looking at a fungicide called tebuconazole uh, it's kind of hard to pronounce but essentially we were looking at thyroid disruption in zebrafish which is a a common uh, model fish organism and we we wanted to see if it if one the effects could be passed to the offspring through epigenetics, through through uh, changes to the genome, and two, if the chemical itself could be transferred to to the offspring. And we found that both both actually happened. Both happened. Yes. So with with epigenetics, it's again quite complicated. But essentially, what happens is the genes get tagged with. A, an epigenetic marker, which is just usually like a single uh, protein or, or sorry, a, a single amino acid uh, or molecule for a gene. And it's essentially tagged saying, use this gene more or don't use this gene more uh, or, or don't use this gene at all. Uh, and and it's, it's a way of altering the genome without actually altering the base pairs. And typically what happens when when reproduction occurs, is that during a stage of development, the epigenome gets wiped. So, so the mother will transfer the the epigenome to the offspring, and up to you know zebrafish, this could be like up to like four hours or so post fertilization. All of a sudden, the genome gets wiped, and the epigenome gets wiped, and it starts fresh. And this is sort of a, uh, it seems to be some sort of evolutionary like safety mechanism to prevent epigenetic codes that are not useful to the, the offspring, but certain mm -hmm. ones don't get wiped. It's, it's not a complete elimination. And in this particular case, we found that some of these genes were not getting wiped. Some of these epigenome markers were not uh, getting wiped out, which can be problematic for for that offspring now they're, they're not starting on the same basis as you would expect if they weren't if their parents weren't exposed to this chemical i hope that's not happening in humans where you know our high plastic diets are maybe doing something to our endocrine systems and then our kids will will you know be a little different too i kind of worry about that yeah, I mean that's that's something I think about quite often actually. In order for it to be multi-generational, it has to pass uh, more than two levels down. Uh, because if you think about when you're when you're in utero, the baby, a fetus is already developing, already making eggs. So Oh wow, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> like I think isn't it like a baby a baby girl is born with all her eggs she'll ever have or something? Yes. And so those eggs were at one point connected to her mother. So, so the grandmother, so now, so now the grandmother could be passing on genes and chemicals to those eggs wow. or to, to, the, yeah. to the offspring. And so for it to be truly epigenetic, for it to be truly uh, multi-generational, transgenerational, it has to pass more than two generations down. That's when, so it's kind of that's when permanent. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like semi permanent at that point, and that's yeah. not a very common, but it does certainly occur in specific compounds, and we're we're finding it more and more with uh, these these common endocrine disruptors that we're exposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a little alarming. 
Well, let, let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about your work uh, in California. Uh, so this has been really cool, by the way, all this epigenic stuff and, and the work that you're doing. And I'm still blown away that you're you're able to, you know, make things glow and then measure it and, and, and decide how, how much estrogen is in something that's just like very, very neat. Science is neat. So if you're listening and you're wondering if you're young and you're wondering <laughs> what to go into, right, there's lots of opportunities uh, to be sustainable, help the world, help the environment, but go into science, right? Go get your science degree and, and try and pick something like this that, that, can help, right? I think that that's great. A lot of a lot of times on the show we talk about careers and and what we can do personally and that kind of stuff. And I I know there are teens that listen to the show, so shout out to you guys if you're trying to plan out your your career. There's some really cool stuff out there. Um, but yeah, let's let's switch gears and talk about your job in California. So what are you doing out there? Yeah, so I work for the California State Water Resources Control Board, which is housed under the California Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, it's similar to the US EPA, but it's just for California. And right now, I am developing regulations for microplastics in drinking water. So this was actually given to us by the legislature as a uh, a goal or a, a task, rather, to come up with a plan to handle microplastics in drinking water. Uh, we didn't know until 2017, actually, that there even were microplastics in our drinking water. And once we discovered it, the California legislature within months uh, passed a law to basically require our agency to look into it. And so they created a brand new position just for me. Uh, I'd just gotten out of my PhD, so I was really lucky, right time, right place, to start uh, working on this. And it's a really aggressive timeline for, for getting this done. Uh, we have until July of next year to essentially uh, solve the issue. So um, that means coming up with a definition of microplastics, which uh, interestingly enough, there was no definition of microplastics that was internationally or, or nationally sort of uh, considered consensus. So we, we first had to define what the problem is, which we did. And of July of next year, uh, we're required to come up with a standardized method to detect it. There are still no standardized lab methods to look for microplastics. So we're developing those. Uh, we have about 40 collaborators around the world that are, that are uh, working on that. Uh, we also have to figure out what the health effects are. We still don't know yeah. what the human health effects are. And this is actually a huge international effort with world experts that is an ongoing we're, we're we're having an ongoing workshop every Monday from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time and we just had our week 4 yesterday uh, week 5 will be next Monday and that'll be the end of the series uh, these are talks from the world experts to provide a consensus statement as well as uh, look at upcoming research that hasn't even been published yet and after these talks we're going to ask the, the experts to uh, put their heads together and give us the best possible answer that science can give about what having what microplastics and drinking water actually means for your health. So stay tuned. It's, that's coming up quite soon. And once we know what the health effects are and how to measure them, then we have to actually measure them in the state. Uh, it'll be um, a four-year plan to look for plastic in drinking water. Uh, and the results will be disclosed to the consumers. Uh, and then after that, we'll reassess sort of the, the state. I'm, I'm sure by, by four years from now, we'll know considerably more than we do now. And maybe start to think about what to do about it, right? So you're, Absolutely. you're, on, you're, defi you're defining it and then you are learning how to like standardize uh, like the measurements and all that stuff, right? Of of the microplastic in water. And then, yeah, it seems like we need to do a lot of this background work before we can start to say, okay, how do we get it out? Or should we get it out? Or what, what should we be doing that way? Right? Exactly. I mean, we're really just laying the, like you said, the groundwork here. It's like, this is really preliminary steps. It's going to be a while because before we come out with an actual regulation that says this amount is unacceptable for drinking water. Uh, that that's going to be a while. Because we don't and, really know yet, right? 
Exactly. And we don't even know how to how to treat it, really. We don't know what, what treatments are, are most effective. And so that, that effort is happening alongside a very important effort that is looking at the problem as a, as a whole on the ecosystem, aquatic ecosystem in California. Uh, similar uh, legislative mandate to consider the health impacts of microplastics to our uh, marine environment in California. And we're, we're, I'm working with the California Ocean Protection Council quite closely on this. Uh, we're, we're sharing a lot of resources uh, and working, working together to determine if there's a quantity that is acceptable for the ocean. And I can tell you there probably isn't. Um, we probably don't want to have any microplastics in our ocean. Uh, but the next step is to come up with a plan. How do we, how do we, uh, how do we stop putting plastic into the ocean? Uh, what things should be prioritized? What are the best practices? And this is really going to be a case study for the rest of the United States, as well as the globe, about what, what to do about this issue. So let's talk about you a little bit. Have you always been interested in the environment or did you kind of get into this stuff once you were already in school? Like, why why do you care so much about the environment? And thank you for caring because it sounds like you're doing a lot of really important work and studies and stuff that are really, that's really going to help, right? Um, so that's great. But yeah, how did you get interested in this stuff? Oh, thanks, Laura. And and thank you for caring about the environment and for doing this show. I, you know, my, my... Thank you fascination really started when I was um, in Boy Scouts as a kid. My my dad took me to Boy Scouts when I was very young, and I did my Eagle Scout uh, um, badge. And it, it was always about conservation uh, and and what we can do to, to limit our impact. And it, that, that really just um, planted a seed in me that when I got to college and started studying chemistry, I was immediately thinking about how could I apply it, and I, I was sort of unsure about exactly what I wanted to study until I went to Costa Rica. Uh, I was a, a guide there uh, after college, um, uh, teaching um, surfing and just uh, generally doing eco-tourism tours for, for youth. And one afternoon, I we had some free time, and I asked the kids if they wanted to go clean up trash on the beach. and we filled up more trash bags than we could carry in just a few hours. And it was, this was really uh, shocking for a lot of us because we were basically in the middle of nowhere on a remote beach. And uh, we learned later that the plastic that we found is not from the locals. There weren't very many locals uh, and they're, they're not really using much plastic. It was actually washed in from afar. And so this awoke an interest in me that when I got back to uh, civilization, uh, quote unquote, I decided to go to grad school and, and focus on plastic pollution. Oh, that's awesome. That's a really cool story. It's tangible. Plastic pollution is tangible. You can see it. And it's offensive to the mm-hmm. eyes. We don't like to see it on beaches. And and you're, you were saying offensive. earlier, <laughs> I mean, it's like universally offensive. Like, I, I, I like it doesn't matter. Like, where you're from, nobody is going to say that it looks good out there. And so when, you know, you were saying earlier about how do we get people to care about these chemicals that they, you can't see, you can't taste, you might not even know if, if it's causing you any harm. The, Mm -hmm. the answer is, is plastic pollution, honestly, because it's the most easy to understand conceptually. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's just the seed. That's just where you start. And once, once you're fascinated by that, once you're interested, then learning about the rest of it is, is a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Because sometimes it's all about the visual, like the, the straw in the turtle's nose, right? That went around the world. That had a huge impact on plastic pollution, that one video. Yeah, and I mean, the, you know, the criticism, of course, from, from folks that don't want to ban the straws, like, well, there's you know, straws are a negligible amount of the plastic waste overall. And there, there's not that many turtles with them in their noses, but it's like, <laughs> okay, but you're missing the issue here. Like, this is just an easy place to start because people care because people can see it. It's obvious. And, and that's, that's all it is. It's, it's just a starting point. 
yeah, it's a low hanging fruit or um, like Trump, Trump has a quote, someone asked him about the plastic straws or something. And he said, well, what about all the takeout containers and all the other things? Right. And but actually he he gets it, I think, like he's he's saying, OK, like that's one thing, but there are a lot of other problems. And I was actually glad that like I couldn't believe he said that. <laughs> that he that he actually has put some thought into, you know, there are, are a lot bigger problems than straws when it comes to plastic. But yeah, it's just one of those things where you can kind of get rid of because a lot of people don't even want them anyway and they're always in our drinks. And uh then it gets people thinking about, okay, well do I need the styrofoam to take my hot soup in and that's gonna leach things in in into my body that aren't good, right? Um it's a good catalyst, I think. Yeah, and it's something that we have direct agency over, I think is the biggest thing. You can choose to have a straw or not. Yeah, like climate change, I think a lot of people are super stressed out about it because they don't know what to do about it. Because they can't, exactly. like in Canada, we can't stop heating our home um, and we can't stop going to work, but we can choose to bring our own bags. I mean, in COVID right now, some places don't let you. Uh, but yeah, there is, that's why I like the zero waste movement like better than some of the other ones, just because it's something we can do right away and it, it gives us our power back, which I think climate is tough sometimes to have power uh, when yeah. we're trying to. Yeah. And it can be fun too, right? Like the zero waste, like you're, you're saying how you, you do like canning and stuff. Like, like you learn, you learn new things and there's like community built around like these new practices. Totally. And skills and there's zero waste shops popping up everywhere. And uh, there's, I try to feature a lot of companies and businesses that are doing really good things because man, it is tough to run a business without plastic in a lot of different genres, you know, with shipping and, and prepping and transportation and stuff. It's plastic is very valuable. Um, so it's, it's tough for a lot of businesses to, to find other ways. So when I find those businesses that have figured it out, I love to feature them <laughs> and get them on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you're saying about people will see the pollution and that that's a good catalyst for change. I find here in Canada, people don't get out of their cars a lot. So when I was on the West Coast, it was a lot cleaner. But now that I'm back above the Great Lakes, the climate is very rarely good to go outside and I'm saying this as someone who loves the outdoors and loves the mountains and and oceans and rivers and stuff but we we it's very very hot here for a few months like super hot and then it's super cold for nine months of the year like very cold and I love to be outside so I'm always seeing the garbage like I see it everywhere I notice it everywhere but I think a lot of people who don't get outside as much like aren't seeing it so they don't really realize how big the problem is but when you do get out of your cars and walk around, you do see a lot of pollution everywhere. I mean, there's a, a theory in like environmental science or like environmentalism in general that if someone sees something, they're much more likely to do something about it. And the reason that the plastic pollution issue has gotten out of hand is because we, for decades, have not been exposed to it. We just don't see it. It's out of sight, out of mind. We've been we've been able to get away with shipping it to developing nations like China and Africa and uh, the Philippines for decades, and now finally these these countries are saying no more. We don't want this stuff, and it's starting to accumulate in our backyards. We're we're seeing it more and more, oh, and yeah. I think we're, you know, we've been we've been absolutely duped by the plastic industry and thinking that it's our fault uh, as consumers for buying this single use stuff and that's, and, and not throwing it away properly, like litter bugs are the issue. Right. But that, that myth has been blown apart. I mean, in very recent times, it's, it's all over NPR, you know, some really good journalism exposing just the, the, the level of effort that the plastic industry went to uh, with these ad campaigns to fool us. And I think that it's it's a really exciting time to be interested in this because we're we have a lot of information and a lot of people are waking up to uh, this realization that it's not just our problem, it's not just our fault. This is a, a societal, a, a systemic thing that we need to, to rip out by the root. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we have to make sure people are fed. And exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I worry when people are like, oh, just don't don't buy any of that stuff or that company is evil. It's like, yeah, that company is polluting a lot, but they're also like providing a ton of nutrition 
to people. I mean, some of the things that some of these companies, I would, I don't know if I could say they're actually any nutrition in them, <laughs> you know, like chips and, and candy bars and, and stuff like a lot of that, that garbage is getting out like in the when I was in the Amazon, oh my gosh, the Amazon is very, very polluted <laughs> with plastic. It's really sad. Uh, it's because it's one of the the last places I, I would think that wouldn't be, but it is. So yeah, I just, uh, I like to try to find the balance, right? Of like, we get it. Plastic is a very good container to put food in and to make sure everybody's kind of fed around the world. We're doing a good job as a world, making sure that everybody's fed, I think, because it's, you know, it used to be a lot worse. Uh, so yeah, I like to find solutions that don't just say, you know, end all plastic, like ban, ban everything. Um, because then we might run into some really big problems if there's ever like, you know, food shortages or something. So yeah, the whole, the whole issue is tricky. And like you said, there's so many options to work on this problem and get paid. (laughs) (laughs) That's important. important. Yeah. I mean, um, there's a, there's a term called regrettable substitution that, uh, gets at this issue that I think you're bringing up of, well, if you ban one thing, what's the replacement Uh, or is there a replacement? And is what, what, which of these, um, scenarios is, is actually better in the long term? And this is Mm -hmm. something that is really being folded into a lot of, uh, these these circular plastic economy bills that are popping up around the world. The European Union is really ahead on this. And California, uh, we, we've been promoting this um, in, in recent years with a, a recent bill, California's uh, circular plastic economy bill. Um, it, it, it did fail um, by a few votes, but it'll probably come up again. But essentially, the idea is not to ban all single-use plastic. There's certain countries that are doing that, and they're they're finding uh, solutions. But the real crux of it is that it should be the producer's responsibility, and that every consumer that buys a polystyrene container shouldn't have to be a waste expert and figure out how to recycle it. Uh, because I mean, yes. you can't even recycle these things. So if if the the producer takes it back and does something with it useful, not just throw it in a landfill or burn it, then it's circular. And it, that's, mm-hmm. that's really, you know, that, that sort of gets around just like banning the, the, the banning everything solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Coca-Cola used to have glass bottles and like my, my friends from Egypt. And he says when he lived there, he used to go to the store and would drink the Coca-Cola there at the store. And then, leave the bottle there and then when the new the new delivery of coca-cola comes the old bottles go back and so it's just a very easy simple thing that would be nice but you know plastic probably saves them a ton of money because it's so much lighter right i mean yeah that's uh the, the the life cycle assessment uh when they when they look at polystyrene in particular uh, it has a much lower carbon footprint because it doesn't weigh very much to ship it, mm-hmm. right? As opposed mm-hmm. to like wood or, or something else. But in a lot of those instances, the sheer amount of packaging could be reduced. That's that's also an option. Minimalist packaging, that is uh, another thing that's uh, we're seeing a lot more um, these days. And and just, and the, I think just the, the, the base is that there needs to be some level of accountability. You know, the we can't recycle the majority of this stuff and if it goes back to the folks who make it, they know it better than anybody else. They know they know the chemistry really well, and they're they're going to be able to find ways to to do something with it much easier than uh, you know a, a municipal waste facility that has to get clever and try and find find ways what to do with the the mixed recycling. Yeah, and it's not fair on taxpayers, right? And a lot of it just goes to landfill anyway. A lot of it just gets thrown out because it's either dirty or not good or they don't need it at that time. It's definitely not not a good answer. But, well, it'll be interesting to watch what you're doing in California with the microplastic regulations because that'll have a worldwide impact, I think, for a lot of us who want clean drinking water and are wondering if, if you know, city water is okay and, and what we should be doing about that. And if it is really bad about, you know, for our health or if we should be 
worrying about it more or less. I don't know. Um, so it'll be really interesting. So is there a website that we can kind of check out that work? Yeah. Yeah. So we highlight our efforts on our state water board website. Uh, you could you could find it uh, if you just Google microplastics, uh, California state water board. It's also at waterboards.ca.gov. You can also follow me on Twitter. I post updates about our, our efforts quite often. Uh, my handle is Dr. S. Coffin. Nice. Cool. Awesome. So, yeah, if you want to check out Scott a little bit more, you can follow him on Twitter or check out that uh, website. And if you just Google him, you can see some of the studies that he's done that I, I got to ask him about today. So that's been super cool. Uh, so thank you so much, Scott, for not only coming on the show, but for all the work that you do. You've done so many studies and it seems like you're still working uh, for something that's very valuable to the world um, with this clean water. So thanks, Scott. Yeah, thank you so much, Laura. This has been a real pleasure chatting with you. Awesome. That was Scott Coffin. He has a PhD in environmental toxicology at the University of California. Uh, he also works for the California State Water Resources Control Board. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.